What up, mi gente? Welcome to another episode of Nominas. In this episode, I chat with my new friend Joaquin Munoz, an education professor at Augsburg University. In this episode, we explore the education system, which brought up a lot of memories of our own experiences in school. And also, we talk about the barriers that POC children face in America's school system. It's a really good episode, friends. Have a listen. And always, thank you so much for your support. Okay, Joaquin, welcome to Nova Diaz. Thanks. Thank you so much for doing this. So, the way I start out is I ask everybody this question. Like, who are you? Who is Joaquin Munoz? Okay. Um, I start by always talking about my my heritage. I'm uh, Yaki. I grew up in a reservation just outside of Tucson in Arizona. And I'm also Mexican-American. My father um, and his family come from northern Mexico. And then my mother and her family come from uh, northern Mexico also, but a little bit further south in Sonora, where the traditional Yaki homeland is. Um, and I grew up intermixed with both aspects of Yaqui identity and Mexican-American identity. Um, although when I was younger, those things always seemed to blend together a lot. So mm. it was hard for me sometimes to tell the difference between the two. But being older now and sort of reflecting back on it, I can see parts of very Latino, Mexican-American heritage and then also parts of Native American Yaqui heritage all sort of coming mm. together. Um, and then it's interesting that you, you know for your, um, for your family comes from in terms of what part of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure my parents told me where my grandparents mm-hmm. are from, but mm-hmm. I don't remember, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I'm a terrible Mexican for that. But, um, and actually like so many other of my uh, Mexican-American friends, like we don't know where our grandparents yeah. came from. Yeah. Um, but you do though. So my question is like, is that something that your parents actually like, educated you on growing Mm -hmm. up or was it one of those like you did your own research or it was a little bit of both and I didn't realize um until later that I didn't realize until later how fascinated I was by this because I kind of knew just at a young age it it seemed really important but I couldn't really say why it's important yeah yeah I'm terrible Mexican for not knowing (laughs) oh no my mom's probably like I'm pretty sure I told you, which I'm like, I'm pretty sure you didn't. But anyway, we're going to discuss this later, Mom. Anyway, continue. No way. There's no, I am, um, I, I think the re- part of the reason why was just be being fascinated by yeah. place, right? And mm-hmm. always thinking about how important and how significant place is to people, how it shapes our identity and how even like very, very passively we make ourselves who we are based on the places that we are from but also the places that we go to the places that are around us so even real basically like i live two blocks south of walgreens on lake and immediately people can place me somewhere right like even in that very simple way which is like it's walgreens no big deal but i know exactly where you but you know exactly right (laughs) you know exactly where i'm coming from as opposed to if i were to tell you say Growing up on the reservation in Tucson, I lived on Camino Rahum, right behind the casino, next to the wall where the mural shows the Yaqui flag and the Venado and the Pascola dancers. 
for people who are familiar with that landmark, they know exactly what I'm talking about. They can find my house immediately. They can place me in terms of the context of the rest of the land space. And so I, for whatever reason, like that just fascinated me when I was a little kid. And so as I was growing up, even though my family didn't really talk so much about where their families were from, I would just pick up these little tidbits and, and bits and pieces here and there. And then probably when I was around 12, 13 years old was the first time I traveled into Mexico down into Sonora where the Yaqui pueblos are. There's eight of them all along the Rio Yaqui River, which is basically like the border of Sonora right above whatever state is south of Sonora. I can't remember right now. And there's these eight little towns that are all along this little river. And we have a bunch of origin stories and a bunch of uh, sacred tradition that tells us about the importance of this river and how it sort of gave birth to all of these um, little towns. But also, you know, all of the hero stories and mythology and, and history and um, just all different kinds of, of lore that construct that place there. And I was really lucky, I think, to get a chance to go down there and see those places yeah. and get a sense of like, oh, that's where we used to be. That's where we still are. And then that's where we used to be. But then there's also a bunch of us in the on the U.S. side in Arizona. Mm. So it just gave me this kind of cool perspective also about knowing that people could be in different places and still be connected, still be related, um, and that you didn't have to base your definition so strongly on just where you're from and, and where you think you belong because there's lots of places that you could belong. Um, oh my god, that statement. So many ways to like interpret that. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I'm like, where would I belong? Let's not get into it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and I'm also thinking about like, how would I describe my house in El Paso? Sure. So I guess I would be like, I live behind the school, behind the Smiths, which is now um, like El Super, I think. Mm -hmm. And then next to the Kentucky Fried Chicken, that's also a Taco Bell. Hmm. <laughs> See, and I, when I was, I lived in Nogales for a little bit on the Ameri uh -huh. on the U.S. side of Nogales, and we lived by a school on the side of the railroad tracks, but if you crossed the railroad tracks, you would get to an El Super type store and a Kentucky Fried Chicken next to a Taco Bell. <laughs> so, <laughs> we can relate in so many ways. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. There's always a Taco Bell slash Kentucky Fried Chicken. There's always a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mexican American neighborhood. <laughs> Next to the Super. Next to the Super. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. But that, like, even that, like, that's, it's funny to think about it that way also because that also, that idea also set up a lot of my understanding of my identity growing up. So mm -hmm. when I was little or like, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I have these very distinct memories of going to different supermarkets and knowing who went to which supermarkets. But also kind of this idea of like certain places that you would go that would sort of be a mark of your authenticity. So in Tucson, you have, um, I don't know if they're there anymore, they used to be what eventually became food cities 
which are mm-hmm. um, they're Seminole Paso. Yeah, they're, yeah, and I don't I don't remember who owns. I think it's the the Bashes Corporation or something. But somebody owns the larger chains of stores that own the chains of stores that own the chains of stores that own Whole Foods or um, uh, Food City. And so uh, we <laughs> had like it is not a Whole Foods. No, no, no. It's a Food, food City. City is right. Way it is very different. <laughs> but right, like knowing the difference between Whole Foods and Food and, City, yeah, yeah, yeah. and being able to say like. I go to Food City because I need to be able to get jalapenos that are actually hot. Right. (laughs) I need to go to Food City because they've got the chilies that I need to make the rellenos. I can't Mm -hmm. get those at Whole Foods or I can't get those at Kroger or, you know, like all the different places. So growing up and knowing like the places to go to get the things that I needed in order to be able to practice that part of who I was. Yeah. And let me also point out at Food City you can get groceries for like two, three weeks for like thirty dollars. Yeah. Whole foods you get it for like two days. Yeah. Yep. That's the same difference. That's no and 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 that I can go to Food City and get actual real fresh corn tortillas. Oh my god. Have you got, have you like been able to find corn tortillas here? Like I have finally. There's a Lucky. There's a company called La Perla. They oh, yeah. La, yeah. They, their tortillas are amazing. And they actually have, like, um, their factory is actually just down the street, like, maybe, like, 10 blocks down that way. Okay. Super close. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, so, what do you do? <laughs> I, I teach. I'm a teacher. That's my, that's my occupation, my vocation, my avocation. Your passion. My passion. I'm a teacher. Um... I've taught at every level of education from as little as fifth grade, fourth grade, third grade. I spent a day with kindergartners, which was awesome, Um, (laughs) and all the way up to students working on their PhDs. Uh, Right now, I work at Augsburg University. I'm a professor in the education department, and my main responsibility is the first series of courses that students take, all that deal in some way with diversity, ethnicity, equity, in being in urban contexts and urban environments and engaging with students in culturally responsible ways. Question for you, because you brought up diversity. Personally, I hate that word. Yeah. How do you feel about it? I My favorite definition of diversity was given to me by a, a trainer who told me, when you have diversity, all you have is diversity. It just means there's a bunch of different people with a bunch of different identities doing a bunch of different things. It doesn't make anything. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't necessarily help anything. It depends on what you do with it, which I've always really liked because it's easy for me, even as I identify as a person of color with native background and Latino background, and and I'm preoccupied with thoughts about what's happening to people of color and marginalized populations everywhere, it's really easy for me to forget that there's lots of other identities that I might not be paying attention to. And so just saying diversity, and especially when it gets used in education as just a code word for students of color, is when it's just like, what's what's the point? One more time for the people in the back, it is used for students of color. Anyway, continue. As (laughs) if to say all of the other diversity is like um, any kind of, I just learned, for example, neurodiversity. Folks who that's a new one. Yeah, okay. right. Like folks who would who might identify somewhere on the autism spectrum. Uh-huh. Um, folks who would um, 
we would we would normally call these like some form of disability, like dyslexia or or a reading issue or however we decide to frame it as problematic as opposed to saying, oh, this is a challenge that people face. We're going to have to learn as educators how to do this job better mm -hmm. because the the ways that we've learned to do it are not effective for everybody, right? So yeah. thinking about all of the other lines of diversity mm -hmm. that we might encounter and how even in a place like Augsburg, for example, which has a, a huge number of students of color, has a huge number, a really large proportion of students who identify LGBTQIA+, um, a number of folks who have various religious diversities, like all of these different diversities, and wanting to ensure that that doesn't mean we're doing everything perfect. We're right. doing everything right. Like, no, I think it's actually a challenge for us to say we have all of these different people. What are we going to do to make sure that the space that we're creating here is open, welcoming, and inviting to all of these different groups of people, mm -hmm. which requires work. And so to say diversity is important, sure, like as many different people as you possibly can, but that doesn't necessarily mean that anything is working or anything is functioning properly. Right. So Just because you have diversity... Does it mean that your job is done? Yeah, yeah. Did the you same hear trainer. That on your white organization. <laughs> just because you have diversity. This trainer I was working <laughs> with, he he asked a question of this room full of um, equity workers. He goes, "So when you have diversity, what do you have?" And everybody tried to give these very, well, it means you have inclusive spaces and it means safe space and me data and people were going on and on. And finally, one person raised their hand who obviously knew the person facilitating and knew the answer to the question, right? He goes, you have nothing. <laughs> exactly. And the facilitator goes, that's right. You have diversity, you have nothing. You have. All you have is a bunch of different people. Yeah. And so I've been thinking about that a lot and what that means for me as an educator yeah. and also what it means for me as I prepare future educators. Yeah. So you're an educator teaching educators. Right. Right. So, and then on our first meeting, we discussed um, how you, well, how you prepare educators on educating students of color mm -hmm. and um, just, you know, I guess I just kind of want to ask, like, what, not necessarily the barriers, but, or maybe, like, what are the barriers that you're facing? Because mm -hmm. um, I told you earlier, like, I would have probably had a better education if my teachers, you know, were more equipped in like teaching students of color. Yeah. Because in El Paso, a lot of my teachers were white and it was just a bunch of white teachers teaching a bunch of Mexican American students. And actually some of them were um, Mexicans, well actually were Mexicans from Juarez. So I mean like they, there was a language barrier there and just having them, you know, <laughs> Um, just, I, I hate to say deal because that's not what I'm trying to say, but them trying to educate these students and mm -hmm. having a language barrier, like there, there was an issue. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think there are lots of barriers. There are lots of challenges and some of the hardest ones are the ones that are the least obvious because in general, not 100%, but in general, most folks would say right now that shaming a child 
for speaking English with an accent is wrong. Not everywhere, but in lots of places. As right? I'm just like holding my right? my heart. Like. <laughs> not everywhere, certainly, but, yeah. but like in our education program, you would not find anybody advocating. If a student comes into your class speaking a, a, a different uh, version of English than what we would consider academic English or standard English, which I have a huge problem with because there is no such thing. But if you have a student who does that, your first job is not to shame them. I don't think anybody in my education field would disagree with me on that. Yeah. However, what that actually means for the practice of teachers who are in the field, whose responsibility it is to work with young people who are coming with various experiences of English, various experiences of schooling, and be able to both support them in their learning development and growth, and at the same time, helping them to be prepared to have the best possible chance for whatever other future they might be going for. Mm. And so the so it would be very obvious and very um, very and extremely problematic, but very obvious if we were constantly dealing with teachers who regularly demeaned, destroyed, denigrated young people for their language use or their language choice. It happens. Not going to deny that it absolutely yeah. happens, but those are in a sense easy to deal with because they're they're there, they're mm-hmm. obvious. Yeah, and again, and not saying that they're dealt with appropriately. Right, but that's obvious. What's a little bit harder to see. Take for example a challenge that I faced working with a group of students taking a two hundred level class. In this class, I made a decision to use a textbook to support my students' learning of orienting themselves to an urban environment like Minneapolis. And the text I decided to use is published by a company called Rethinking Schools. And mm-hmm. The text is called Teaching for Black Lives. Okay. And part of the foundation of the text is a reading and understanding of the 13 principles of Black Lives Matter and talking about how what we would call traditional curriculum, traditional content and materials that students encounter is quite often biased in a very in a political way but also to a a particular story of this country and the people of this country and and what the sort of the mythos of what this country is yeah and most people would would probably say that the mythology of this country is fucked up sorry (laughs) (laughs) is normal Right, yeah. it's regular school. Yeah, and if you are bringing in something like, let's look at the thirteen principles of Black Lives Matter, or mm-hmm. let's talk about decolonize, decolonizing the classroom or decolonization, then you're doing something to curriculum uh, that makes you an activist, or it makes you, um, you know, you're, you're trying to brainwash you're children, you're radical, yeah. you're, you're trying to liberalize my kids, or something like that. Whereas, from my perspective, if I look at a teacher who says, we're going to do this unit on the Americas, and mm. I'm going to talk about Christopher Columbus, and I'm going to talk about how the United States, you know, the, 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 the Northern, North America was discovered in 1492. Mm-hmm. While being factually inaccurate, right. most folks would say there's no political agenda behind somebody saying 
Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing political about that. That's just regular. That's just traditional. Even though it's a lie. Right. From my standpoint, <laughs> right. I look at that and go, yeah. that's absolutely political. All of that is political. Yeah, all beyond, yeah. actually. It's all, it's biased. It's biased toward a particular group of people. It's biased toward a particular story. And all of that is contained within a particular agenda mm-hmm. about what children need to learn. Yeah. But when children are learning, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, nobody's jumping up and down and saying, those children are being radicalized. Those children are being uh, uh, brainwashed right. to believe a particular political agenda. Even though even they, though they are. Be- even though they very are. Oh yeah. my God. Right. And so uh, I, I step in wow. and I say, let's look at this text called Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, and let's look at this te- text called Teaching for Black Lives, mm-hmm. which says a lot about, can we tell the real story of slavery? Can we teach the, the, the accuracy of that story? Not for the purposes of making people feel terrible and guilty, but so that you understand like what actually happened. Right. Can we talk about? Can we problem? Can we make it problematic that while everybody lifts up Abraham Lincoln as a great hero to our country, and no doubt he was, but at the same time, for a long time, he supported slavery. Can we talk about how yeah. challenging that is? Right. And I have students who come up to me afterwards and said, love everything about your class except you using that text because I felt like you were trying to give me your political perspective and your political agenda. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, I am. But at the same time, don't assume that if I wasn't doing that, I wouldn't be giving you a political agenda also. I would be. I very would be. And that one's really, really hard to articulate because it, it goes unexamined it goes unmarked it's so normal and so natural for us to think about history to think about language to think about culture in very americanized sort of western westernized ways yeah we think about them the way we breathe and so to point out that the way you breathe you might be breathing something that's inaccurate or inappropriate. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. I've breathed this in my entire life. What are you talking about? We're Columbus breathing. Exactly. Wow. And so yeah. that's hard. That's much harder because if I'm watching a teacher yeah. work with students and I hear them say, stop speaking broken English. Ugh. Like I know how to go directly yeah. to that teacher and say, we need to have a conversation right. about this. That's a problem. When I hear a teacher saying, um, we're going to talk about Columbus, that's a harder conversation to have just because I'm trying to I'm trying to help you realize that air you're breathing is not is not <laughs> pure air. Right. There's something else going on there. So that's a that's a big challenge of being in this kind of work where trying to help teachers think in culturally responsive ways, mm-hmm. trying to be response responsive and responsible yeah. toward other cultural experiences. That's really challenging because well my culture is my culture, and it, it, it's what I know, so it's right. right. Yeah. yeah. And everybody else probably thinks that way, too, so mm-hmm. it can't be that big of a deal. Right. right? Except it's very not. Yeah, because we're also taught, like, the three ships. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, the Mayflower. And actually, that's all I can think. I only know the Mayflower, so my education system failed me regardless. <laughs> <laughs> but that's crazy. You also use the D word decolonization <laughs> <laughs> I was like, talk more about decolonization it has to me the term decolonization and decolonizing has lots of different meanings and lots of different purposes and what i would say for me mostly 
The process of decolonization is really about interrogating all of the things that we believe and to make determinations about whether or not all of the things that we believe really serve us in the ways that we think they do. Because again, much like trying to challenge the teacher about Christopher Columbus in 1492, the ways we've been colonized to behave about just about everything are incredibly problematic. And they're especially problematic for folks of color, mm -hmm. for indigenous folks, for queer folks, for folks who are quite often marginalized because colonizing processes tell us they're supposed to be. There has to be a margin. Otherwise, there's no dominance. Right. And so when I talk about decolonizing, I talk about it really in what I think are, are very small, but I think significant acts. So here's an example. Uh, in my classroom this morning, I was talking with a group of uh, incoming first-year students. And they are very, very, very used to the way school is constructed. Mm. So the teacher is the teacher. The students are the students. The teacher maintains the power structure. The students follow the power structure. The students also resist the power structure, but they don't do it in ways that the teacher would recognize. Okay. The, the teacher is responsible for the transmission of information. Mm -hmm. It goes in one direction only. Their job as the students is to be passive recipients of the information that's being passed from me, the expert, to them, the non-experts. They don't have anything to contribute. Mm -hmm. They don't bring anything to the table because I'm the greater, I'm the assessor, I'm the evaluator, right. I am the holder of all the power. Yeah, but it's your responsibility. It's mine. Yeah. This is my domain, this is my house. And if you want to come in here, you might be lucky, I might let you in, but in all likelihood I won't, because mm -hmm. this is where my power structure lies. Yeah. So one of the first things that I do in class is I move all the tables and desks out of the way, and we sit in a circle facing each other. Right off the bat. And that freaks them the fuck out. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No, they're terrified. They're terrified. You see people with like their, their legs crossed and like, one leg is like rapidly, rapidly <laughs> shaking or they have their arms crossed. Yeah. And they're just, they're not having they're it. They're not having it. And so today I was having them tell stories. We were in circle yeah. and I had them tell stories about, the, the question was, tell a story about something it might be an object or a person or, or, or some like toy or a book or whatever, but tell a story about something that was precious to you when you were a child. And I had them uh, break into pairs and tell the story to each other. Then I had to get, have them get into groups and tell stories in small groups. And then I had them get in a whole circle and tell the story to the whole circle. And as they were telling the story, I kept noticing that everybody would turn to me mm -hmm. to tell the story. Mm. They would not look at each other. They kept looking at me. And so right. I said, let's just talk about that for a second. What, why, why is everybody focused on me? This is a circle. We're all sitting on the same level, equidistant from the center. Right. You can look at everybody, but you're all looking at me. And one student goes, well, it's because you're in charge. You've got the grades. Like You get to reward us or punish us. And then <laughs> the young woman sitting next to me goes... Right, we have to look at you because we have to read your facial cues to know if we're doing it right or not. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I go, yeah, 
That's absolutely right. If we were in any other setting in this university, that would probably be 100% correct. Mm. But that's not how it works here. Right. We're in circle. We're in circle. It's <laughs> not how this works here. And so your job is to connect to everybody else in this circle. So I had them do this little exercise where every single one of them had to look at everybody in the circle and make some kind of gesture to to articulate that they had seen mm -hmm. them or connected. So some waved, some smiled, yeah. some laughed, whatever. But they were they had to look at everybody else besides me. Yeah. And I said, this is going to be really challenging for you because you have been trained to focus on me as the power broker. You have been trained to know that I'm in charge, mm -hmm. that I have the power, that you have no power, and that it's my, that I'm I'm the broker here. Yeah. Anything you want, you have to get from me. That's not how this class is going to work. So yeah. it's going to be very challenging for you. So I see that, and I talk to them about that. I see that as a process of decolonizing. I see that as an opportunity where, yeah. as a teacher, I can connect to students and say, I have this, I have this information, I have this vast experience and, and, and wisdom that's probably 15 to 20 years more yeah. than you have. But you are not less intelligent than me. You are not less important than me. You can't... It's not that you can't contribute to the class in useful and generative and beneficial ways. Mm. You absolutely can. The one thing that separates you from me is I have 15 or 20 years more experience of this stuff than you. Yeah. And if you trust me, and I better give you a reason to trust me, then you can follow me. Like you might yeah. follow me and say like, oh, he's doing what I want to do. And he seems to be pretty good at it, so I think I'm going to follow him because he seems to know. As yeah. opposed to, I'm going to follow him because if I don't, I get a bad grade. Yeah. Because if I don't, I get in trouble. Right. So I see all those as little examples of processes, of many different processes right. that I use to decolonize classroom spaces. And say, right. Like this, this, this <laughs> mindset that you've come in here with. Yeah. Not going to work. The education. Yeah. The education system. Right. I love that. In the hopes that. Right. When you've got your 20 or 30 little kids in front of you, you're doing something right. similar. Exactly. Yeah actually caring about your students for one. <laughs> what was your little story though? About my my precious item? Your precious what was your precious item I, out of curiosity? I still have my precious item. So growing up on the reservation I didn't realize until much later how poor we were. Yeah. Um, and we weren't I mean for a time we were we would get like government rations and we would get food stamps and things like that. But that didn't last a real long time. But it was there for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, we were often the recipients of uh, government food or like Toys for Tots programs or mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. And my mom for a while was coordinating one of those programs. And so I used to get first dibs on some of the stuff. <laughs> she would like sneak me in. She's like, you can have one thing. And so um, she was uh, facilitating the, the yeah. Christmas program where they had gotten a bunch of toys donated. And she said, you know, she like looks around and she's like, all right, I'm going to let you in first. So, and I'm sure like the room is probably the size of a bathroom. But when you're five years old, it looks like you've landed in heaven and there's toys everywhere so i have yeah. this memory of like rooms and rooms and walls of every toy you could imagine it was probably like a closet right. but anyway yeah. so i'm looking around and I, she said you can have anything you want so i'm looking around and i'm like looking at toys and looking at things and i see sitting on a shelf this little stuffed tiger 
Mm-hmm. A little tiny guy, probably about five, six inches tall. He you know, sits with his little feet out front. And he just looks super, super cute and super, super happy. So I went over and I picked him up and I was looking at him and I said, I think, I think this is what I want. And I'm pretty sure the tiger talked to me and told me, I'm what you want. And I went, cool, I'll take you. So I, I grabbed the tiger and I was walking out of the room to go tell my mom I had gotten what I decided to get. And I was just checking him out and I looked at his tail and he had a, the, the little tag that says like, you know, the, the name of the toy yeah, and the information. Yeah. I looked at the tag and it said copyright 1981. And I went, 1981? You were born in 1981. I was born in 1981. And somehow in my brain that made me think we were the same. So I went, we're like, we're brothers or something. I don't know. I couldn't figure out like why we were. And so that was him. Like that was it. That was the one. Did and you name the tiger? I named him Mr. Tyke. <laughs> Amazing. And I kept him and I still have him. He sits on my on my bookshelf at night. Uh, sometimes I still snuggle with him if I if I want to, but he travels man. the world with me. Like that's awesome. We've been all over the place. I stuff him in I stuff him in my carry on bag, and I always like this. I don't care what happens to anything else. This bag stays with me. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I, I know they they're like thirty eight year old university professor talking about his Mister Tiggy. What? Why am I taking this class? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm happy. If, I, if, like, if you're having a hard time with this, if you feel awkward or strange, I feel like I'm doing my job. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, actually, because I, I thought about what would, what would mine be, and mm-hmm. mine actually would be my stuffed animal, George, who it was a, it was a dog, and it had like leather ears, like in the uh-huh. inside of the ears were leather, and the nose was leather. And I found him at a Goodwill next to the Big Eight, which was a grocery store in El Paso. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found him in a Goodwill, and I just like fell in love with this like stuffed puppy. And I named him George after George and the Jetsons. And because my parents were like, "Why did you name him George?" And I was like, "I like the name George." And they're like, "All right, <laughs> you know." And unfortunately, George is no longer with us. Oh. Like I think my dad ended up like giving him away when like they moved out of the house. Mm. Still not over it, but you mm. know. I know. I know. Maybe I'll I'll dream of a life where George is making another <laughs> another little person very very happy right now. Gosh, I hope so. That's what I believe. Oh, uh, well, 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 yes, we'll keep that. <laughs> like that is that's wonderful. Now I'm sad because I miss George. But anyway, but this is also awesome. to the to the question you asked earlier. Like this is also to me an example of decolonization that you come into what the institution calls an, a significant place. You're mm-hmm. in a classroom at the university. Yeah. The institution has deemed this space important. And the person who comes into that space to facilitate your learning has decided to openly talk about himself, mm-hmm. aspects of who he is, aspects yeah. of how he identifies. And thinking about the 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 where we normally say this is teacher this is student mm-hmm. and being able to say personally being able to say no I'm I'm not going to rigidly draw those boundaries in the same ways that other people do because I think it's important that right. you know who I am I think it's important that we are able to establish something like a relationship mm-hmm. that's just that's not just constructed upon 
what I can give and what you can receive. Yeah. Right. That it's mm-hmm. not. I mean, that's to me. That's a very like, ugh, it, like it feels almost. Um, it, it like cheapens a human experience. Yeah. That the the nature of our interaction has to do with giving and taking. It's very mm-hmm. like capitalist in a sense, right? That the that without that without that 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 compulsion. Yeah. Right. Then then the the function that I serve for you is mm-hmm. I am the rewarder or I am the punisher. And right. you are the one that receives whatever I decide to throw out. Like it's so to me it's so inhumane. It's so not a person. It's so like I don't I can't think about what that right. what that does to people. Yeah, well especially because what what do they get out of it if they're just worried about pleasing a person? Like are they really getting a good education? Yeah. What did you actually learn if you're if what you're compelled to do mm-hmm. is watch me and look at my face to figure out if you're pleasing me. Like, right. What are you learning? Can you learn anything at all? And even if I'm being very practical, which I don't like to be, but if I'm being very practical, mm-hmm. if my job is to help you learn some things that you don't know and you don't feel safe in the space that I've constructed, just very practically, your your neurophysiology is telling you that this is not a space to learn. This is a space to survive. This right. is a space like, I just need to get out of here as quickly as possible without any physical damage, without any emotional damage, without any social damage. Those are my objectives. That's not learning. That's that's surviving. That's going into battle. Right. That's that's We're not in a relationship where I can teach and you can learn. Yeah. We're in a relationship where we're going to fight. Yeah. And, wow. I mean... Let's be honest here. I've got the weight of the institution behind me. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to fight, who do you think is going to win? Yeah. Wow. I've actually like never thought about the education system that way. You're really like changing, like you're opening my mind. <laughs> and I would hope that, and I know this isn't normal or, or typical, I don't right. think. I would hope that the, the students that I work with to eventually become teachers would have some sense of the awareness of this, not only in the space of the university, but in the space of their own schools, mm-hmm. whether they're in a, you know, Sanford is just up the road, a middle school just down the yeah. road, whether or not the hope that my students would be prepared to enact some of that work mm-hmm. in their middle school, elementary schools, or high schools to say, yeah. I don't want your kids coming into my classroom thinking that this is war. Yeah. And I want to give you the capabilities and the skills and and, and, and work with you and, and develop relationships with you mm-hmm. so that when you send your kids to me, when you come to me, this is not about fighting. This is not about destruction. Like we're Yeah. It's we're, about actually learning. Yeah, it's about <laughs> learning and working together like actual human yeah. beings. Like getting an education. Yeah. yeah. Which I mean, in the in the teaching field, I feel what it is that, or I guess one of the issues that I had with my education is that a lot of the teachers really didn't want to be teachers. Sure. And it was just, like, the easiest thing for them to get. Sure. Um, and I just... Because even, like, when I... Because I was a theater major, um, and I graduated with a theater degree, and 
um, a lot of my professors uh, or advisors, I should say, were like, you should get your teaching license so that way you can teach theater. So that way you're not, you know, you've, you can fall back on teaching if you don't make it as sure. an actor. But for me, I was like, I don't want to be a teacher, mm-hmm. though. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be a teacher that's miserable teaching people when they don't, when, you know, I don't want to be teaching them. Yeah. You know, because those are the teachers that I have. Mm-hmm. So, like, what good am I? Mm-hmm. I mean, now, old, like, you know, as I get older, now I'm like, actually, I think I would be a great teacher because <laughs> I actually do care. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for a while, I, I didn't. And mm-hmm. I think that's... That's a lot of teachers, you yeah. know, in the United States. And yeah. that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's part of the reason why we don't see as many teachers of color um, in our profession as I think is necessary. Yeah. Um, Minnesota has one of the most ridiculous out of proportion percentages for teachers of color versus white teachers. I think it's like 96% white. <laughs> four or five six percent teachers of color in the entire state wow (laughs) and usually when students come into my education courses they generally say one of two things about why they're going into teaching Mm -hmm. one is something like i loved miss wilson I remember how wonderful Miss Wilson was, and, and the only thing I can think of ever since I was little was I want to grow up and I want to be Miss Wilson to another student because she touched my life in so many amazing ways. And then a lot of folks of color who go, I don't know what you're talking about. Miss Wilson was a <laughs> and I'm actually in teaching because I want to make sure there that there are more teachers not like Miss Wilson. Wilson, right? Like so Or in the, my case, Miss Shellnut, which my mom got fired, but that's another story. We're gonna talk we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I feel that. Oh, I feel that already. Oh. Mm-hmm. But that that uh, that teaching is seen as this as as this job that has this capability with all of this strength and all of this power to do all of these things, um, but that I have too often seen that power misused yeah. by teachers. And that, that's part of what worries me and part of why I do what I do in mm-hmm. the hopes that I can get future educators, future teachers to recognize how much power they actually have and carry with them, especially as it relates to the lives of young people. Yeah. And think about, what am I actually going to do with that? There's a lot I can do. There's a lot. There's a lot I can do to build, and there's a lot I can do to destroy. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do? And hoping, like, they answer that question in the best way for kids. Yeah. 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 That's a tough one. Well, going back to Michelle Nett, since we are talking about education, Mm -hmm. I might as well throw it in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This woman, she was my first grade teacher. And the thing is, like, my home life at the time, it was kind of rough. And I was going through some stuff. I was, I would just randomly just start laughing in class. Like, Mm -hmm. nothing was funny, but I just would think of something I would laugh and then I would get in trouble. And Mm -hmm. uh, this woman actually, um, she, I I was always in trouble with her and she would um, exclude me from activities and Mm -hmm. I didn't realize she was doing it. Yeah. Until, it wasn't until my mom went for a parent-teacher conference and um, the elementary school I went to, 
tigers was like the mascot. So every student in her class had a tiger on the wall. Uh-huh. And um, I guess I don't remember, but if you did something good, you got like a little star on the tiger. Mm-hmm. And my mom walked in and she said, where's your tiger? And I was like, I don't have one. And mm-hmm. my mom's like, what do you mean you don't have one? And the teacher, Michelle, was she all of a sudden she's like, oh, you don't have one? And I was like, no, you never gave me one. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, immediately she gave me one. And my mom was like, wait a minute, what's going on? Oh. And... Um, and the thing is, like, <laughs> just my mom's gonna hate me for this, but like, so I didn't want to go to school. Like, I I didn't want to go to school, and I fought really hard not to go to school. Yeah, yeah. And um, so my mom like just took it out on me because she thought I was just being like a spoiled brat. Right. And like, she's never spanked me in my life until that one. <laughs> until that one time, cause she spanked me once because I didn't want to go to school. And then of course, when she found out everything, like she just felt so bad forever, you know. Aww. And, so I didn't go to school for like a week. <laughs> She's like, you're not going. Yeah. But yeah, eventually, like, they had a parent or the principal got involved. Everybody got involved. And Texas has like the task test that Texas academic, whatever, whatever that every student has to take. And mm-hmm. pretty much my scores were legit um, because she told she told my parents and the principal that I was stupid. Like, she mm. flat out told them I was stupid and that I needed to go back to kindergarten, that I needed to repeat kindergarten. Um, but, of course, my scores, you know, proved otherwise. Right. I still ended up going to summer school, but, um, but yeah, that woman didn't come back the next year. So that was also traumatizing for oh. me. And it was a white woman. <laughs> I'm just going to point that out. Uh, so obviously she was, it was also some sort of racism. She really didn't care about these kids that she was teaching. Right. Yeah. I think, and I think it's important that you put in the word trauma Mm -hmm. because we, it's very easy from an older or sort of removed standpoint to feel like the things that are enacted on children Mm. are not traumatizing and they very, very are. Oh yeah. Very. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm just shook talking to you about mm-hmm. it. This happened mm-hmm. when I was, like, what, seven, mm-hmm. eight years old? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yep. that really kind of screwed me yep. for life. Yeah, yeah. The And the disturbing part to me, based on the, on the story that you told and the way you told the story, is the sense of your teacher's sort of nonchalance like oh I f- oh my god I forgot let me put a name right as, as if mm-hmm. the exclusion up until that point was no big deal that I can very quickly remedy but like yeah yeah I just yeah like and I, I think about this a lot now uh, Augsburg has I don't want to mess up the numbers so I won't say for certain but we have a, a sizable population of students who identify as LGBTQIA+, plus, mm-hmm. and a number of them who are challenging the faculty about gender pronouns. Yeah. Actually, and, I was going to ask you about that, because how does that work? I mean, it's, it's, for me, personally, identifying as a heterosexual cisgender male, wrapping my mind around what this what this new idea is and what it means even mm-hmm. as a person who i think is very deeply committed to wanting to build spaces where everybody can come in mm-hmm. i i can hear myself and feel myself lapsing into 
in a sense, colonized mindsets, Mm -hmm. when I see somebody and go, her, him, even when they have told me they, them. Yeah. And one of the, one of the more uncomfortable experiences for me, and in part it's uncomfortable because I, I feel like I'm, I'm working on being a recovering perfectionist, so I always beat the <laughs> crap out of myself when I get things wrong. When a student says, I identify as they, them, and I say, hey man, what's up? And then in my mind I go, oh, oh damn, right? Mm-hmm. So that moment where afterwards I gotta go up to the student and say, listen, I know you identify as they, them. When I said hi, I know I said, hey man. Yeah. Like, let's talk about that for a second. And, and, um, and being able to, to put very intentional thought around being inclusive of the folks who are in the spaces that I'm helping to create. Mm-hmm. I take that very seriously. And even though I mess up way more than I would like to, um, I still take it very seriously yeah. that, that it's my responsibility because I do. I remember I am sanctioned by the institution. I have all of this power behind me. Mm-hmm. And in all likelihood, the institution will side with me before they side with the student. So rather than using that to my advantage and saying, well, I'm just going to do what I want because right. they're going to back me up and what can you do? But right, mm-hmm. I try to think about that and say, how can I balance this power differential out yeah and if it means that i need to take on a greater amount of responsibility and i need to check myself and i need to be more intentional about these things Mm -hmm. i'm going to do it whether whether it's hard whether it's challenging like i got to do it because i got a lot of power behind me that tells me i don't have to yeah and i don't i don't agree with that so um which is amazing i really i personally appreciate (laughs) that um so, because I, I, you know, I thought about this um, before you, you came, before you came, um, I just wondered how would it be for a non-binary person to be teaching mm-hmm. class because, well, teaching like a, you know, a class with young children because A, you, you have to let them know, oh, I use they, them. Right. But having to have that discussion with children, mm-hmm. even before you start with educating them, yeah. you have to educate them basically about yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know how that would, how would, how would I even start that conversation? Because yeah. I guess we would even have to talk to the parents, mm-hmm. which important. Uh, I mean, there's lots of there's lots of steps to it and lots of layers to it. And, yeah. and again, this also comes back to the notions of the colonized classroom space where if you do not present in what would be considered a typical, traditional, acceptable family structure, then you're not allowed to present at all, right? You need to keep that out of this space. Mm -hmm. First of all, that's nonsense. That's just complete crap. Because just if, like Columbus, anyway. if I'm exactly <laughs> if I'm going to if I'm going to have this expectation that this group of young people is going to follow me wherever I take them to, they need to know who they're following. Yeah, we run into the challenge though again with this idea of of curriculum or information that is that's just normal and typical and 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 regular. Yeah, and then this other stuff over here that's activist, radical, liberation, whatever, where a person coming into a classroom space to say, I don't identify as he, him, 
I identify as they, them. There is a section of people who would say, that's brainwashing children. Ah. You're radicalizing them with your liberal <laughs> propaganda. Gen- right, right. All you're doing <laughs> is you're trying to, to blah, blah, blah. And I look at that and I go, you've, you've got to be, that's, in, that's insane. But they would, and I imagine, although I've never, I haven't run into it in this way, right? Because again, there's certain things that we're allowed to marginalize and not. Right. Where if an, if an African-American male were to come into a classroom and say, my name is Dr. Brown. I identify as an African American male. Don't talk about that. That's a liberal bias, right? Like they probably they may not say it. they probably would. But how difficult and how challenging this is when an aspect of who you are can't be presented because it, it's claimed to be this to be a liberal agenda. Like you're yeah. not allowed to be you. And to me, that's just mind blowing because I my thinking is like you have to be you. If you're not you. You can't be an effective leader in a classroom because you're never going to be authentic. Right. You're never going to be really you. And children can pick up on that. Right. Exactly. Immediately. I don't, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge challenge. It's one that, um, I think, I think it's going to require a lot of very careful and deep thinking in terms of how to bring about this change in terms of how teachers are allowed to be in the classroom. Yeah. Um, but I know from um, anecdotal experiences of teachers who have gone through these challenges, mm-hmm. um, being able to post a family picture when it's a lesbian couple with two mm-hmm. children, right? And what happens in the tumult of students figuring that out and saying, something's not right here this isn't yeah. okay or mm-hmm. you know right or my religion tells me that's not except right like oh, all of that yeah. kind of stuff that yeah. comes up um but at the same time and i'm really hopeful for this i don't see i don't see us reverting back to stop stop identifying yourself as something other than he she it's either he or she and that's it mm. you need to stop like i don't see that happening Right. Which makes me happy because I love the idea of people being able to identify who they are and what they are in the way that works for them in the way that's true to who they're being. Right. um, Because it makes the world a better place. Let's just be honest. Yeah. It it, it makes the world a better place. It makes the world a more interesting place. It makes the world a fairer place. It makes Mm. the world a more inclusive place. It makes the world... um, It makes the world more like what the world actually is, which is like not simple super complex super complicated and um and that evil word diverse (laughs) (laughs) you said it this time i did i did say because i had to bring it up again (laughs) (laughs) fuck that word anyway (laughs) um but i yeah i think i think it's going to be happening i think we're going to be coming into this challenge much more frequently yeah um and i love it i think it's great and i think um, as a as an education professor and as an education teacher, I think it's my job to figure out how to how to help students do it well. Yeah. And I love that idea. I love that I have to that I there's this new challenge that I need to be thinking about, and and to accept it in in a way that embraces everybody's experience. I think is super important, and I like that. I like that it's something that I yeah. have to do rather than um, 
yeah, this new thing. Why can't people just blow? Like, no, no, no. I didn't get an education because I want to make things simple. Shut up. Right. Got into this because I like the idea that we're all such complex beings. So let's be complex and let's figure it out. <laughs> yeah. We're smart people here. Come on. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. So we're coming to an end to our conversation, which I have to say was pretty fucking great thank you so much it was fun oh my god it was amazing (laughs) um i do like to end my episodes by asking my guests um what do you want to say to the community Mm. what do you want the community to know what do you want to tell them this is your chance Mm. what do you want to tell the community i love you all so much i love everything about being who we are and presenting ourselves in as many different ways and as many different aspects of who we are. And I don't want anyone to ever feel like they don't get to be who they are because they believe that there's a right way to do it or that there's only one way to do it. I think there's so many ways to be people And I think there's so many ways to be a part of who we are. And I think everybody should get to decide what that means for them. And I think we should all embrace as much of that as we can. And the only experience that I believe is good for humanity, is good for everybody, is for all of us to be thinking in much more broad and much more complex ways to accept how complex the world is and to love it because it is. Yeah. Amazing. Y'all are wonderful. I love y'all. Ah. I love us all so much. <laughs> I love us too. <laughs> and on that note, until next time, friends, and also fuck the word diversity. Okay, bye. Peace. <laughs>